Oh, good morning, everybody. Um, as Matt said, my name's Madison Wyman. I'm a pastoral intern here at Terra. Um, I think I've, I've preached probably twice here before, so hopefully uh, some of you have seen me up here. Um, if you're visiting with us, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, I'm honored to be standing here myself this morning. Um, just about a year ago, a year ago tomorrow, actually, um, I was married right here. And in the time, you know, in this last year, I've gotten to know a lot of you a lot better. And, you know, it's for that reason that I just feel really just blessed to be up here and be able to bring the word to you this morning. Um, another reason that I'm blessed and honored is that, um, you know, Pastor Dan and Pastor Matt trust me up here. And maybe it's better said they trust God to not let me make a mess of myself up here, bringing my word, not his. So this morning, I pray this message would be God's word to you and not my words to you. So he will be revealing himself today through our passage, which is going to be Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23, as well as verses 34 and 35. Um, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to that. And if not, uh, the passage will be on the screen behind me. Um, just for right now, we will be reading verses 1 through 9 and then 34 through 35. This is the word of God. That same day, Jesus went out to the house and went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky soil, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father God, I ask you to rein in my words if they would depart from what you would have me say. I pray that you would open the ears and the eyes of the people listening this morning and that you would re reveal yourself to them. I pray that you draw us near and show us your love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this section is the first formal use of one of Jesus' most loved teaching tools, the parables. We see it really often after this. In fact, chapter 13 of Matthew is just chock full of them. I think it's the only thing in chapter 13 is Jesus using parables, explaining parables, and people responding to parables. I say it's the first formal use because, I mean, Jesus uses these a lot up until this point. A parable is simply just a short fictional account which is used to communicate, tr communicate truth. It differs slightly from allegory where allegory an allegory has each element of the story has a particular meaning, whereas in a parable, it's more big idea. See, parables are vehicles for ideas, and they're equally capable of 
sustaining real nuanced thought as well as practical application. For example, in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, Jesus says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. That, that's a parable. It's not called a parable in our English translations in the headings, but it is, for all intents and purposes, a parable. Another great power of parables is that they really tend to meet us where we are. Parables will come into your life and meet you where you're standing. If you're turned off to what Jesus has to say, it's going to harden your heart a little bit more. For others, it may work to melt your hard hearts. So as we enter into the parables, which may be familiar to some of us, I want to challenge us to not let familiarity keep us from what Jesus is saying to us. Because wherever you are, you can enter into this because Jesus has something to say to you through the parables. So this morning, here's the big idea. Truth meets us where we are and shows us where we need to go. Now we'll step through our passage this morning with that idea in mind and we'll look at Jesus, why Jesus uses parables and what that means for us. But first I want to say a a couple words about truth. I think the first thing we should probably do is to clear up our definition of truth because I think it's very easy to have an unbiblical definition of what truth is. Too often we think of truth as just a synonym for fact. Well, that's not the biblical understanding. That might be what the dictionary says. That's not how we're supposed to understand it biblically. Biblically, truth is living. It has personality. In John 15, 26, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. Truth is more than a fact. It's ultimately and supremely God's revelation of himself to us. The revelation that God gives is a sort of invitation, inviting him, inviting us to get to know him. He is allowing us to come in and feast on the riches of his character. And I think it might be helpful this morning to give some categories in which God invites us into his character and into his truth. Now, categories always run the danger of making separations and drawing lines where maybe there shouldn't be separations or lines, but they're still helpful with helping us hold truths that otherwise might be too vast or awkward to get our hands around. So, First, he's revealed himself in his creation. This is sometimes called general revelation. God, having created the universe, has left his mark on all of it. In Psalm 19, The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Romans 1, 19 through 20, it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. For many of us, we interact with this revelation of truth on a day-to-day basis in our jobs or in our schooling Learning things about the world, history, science, philosophy, our trades, those are all ways that God can reveal himself to us. 
Second, we have personal revelation, or God speaking directly to you. He may do this by appealing to your emotions. He may speak to you in your circumstances, in your life situation. He may even speak to you in an audible voice or a vision. Thirdly, and most importantly, God speaks to us through Scripture or special revelation. Scripture, the Word of God, is the most complete revelation of God that we have. It's His words about Himself given to us. If it helps, general revelation is kind of like a, uh, a painting. You can see the painter's mind and heart and soul with, within the painting itself, but you can't actually see the painter. It's not him. Uh, personal revelation tends to be like music. A good song you really like invokes an emotional response from you, but you're not sure how or why, and that's a real, day, that's a real sketchy place to be sometimes. Special revelations like a biography, an autobiography. It's the author's words about himself. It's as close as the author, clo- it's as close to the author as we can get without actually coming face to face with him. So you can see where some of these revelations of truth can be dangerous or misinterpreted by us. Personal revelation, being an appeal to our emotions mainly, can be masked by our tainted and our fallen wills. Our hearts are wicked, and sometimes our emotions are not things that we should follow. Often we actually need to deny ourselves, so we must be careful when we're saying, oh, I have a feeling from God, if God's giving me this feeling. Likewise, general revelation, because that passage from Romans 1 that I mentioned earlier goes on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. See, it's really easy to see creation and accept the gift and then reject the giver. We can get caught up in loving the things of the world, or we can accept the things we learn about the world as a higher truth and discard God entirely. For these reasons, all truth must be measured against Scripture. If we have a feeling from God and that feeling is contrary to what Scripture teaches, then we don't have a feeling from God. If our study is showing us something and is bringing us in a certain direction, but that is contrary to what Scripture has to teach, then our study is wrong. It's helpful, I think, to think of these different revelations of truth as a tricycle, with Scripture being the big wheel in front and personal and general revelation being the small wheels in back. Scripture's got to be the main one. It's the driving force. It's what keeps us going, and the other two are helpful for keeping us going straight. But if one of those back wheels gets a little too inflamed or too big, we're just going to end up going in circles. Now, here's the most important part of all of this, is that all of these expressions of God's character, all of this truth is most vibrant, clear, and complete in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15, it says, concerning Jesus, he is, the invi- he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created and all things were created through him and for him. So in regards to general revelation, Jesus is the painter, the paintbrush, and the audience. 
special revelation, Jesus himself said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He said that in Matthew 5, 17. In fact, in our passage this morning, which I'm now just seeing I neglected to read, um, so I'll read it now. In verse 34 and 35, it says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds. In parables, indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now that, if you have a Bible translation where that is taken out as a quote from poetry, you can track that back to Psalm 78. And that, if you read through that psalm, that's a psalm about the story of the history of Israel and how God's revealing himself to them all throughout Scripture. And it concludes with the glorious reign of King David. But as we know, the story doesn't stop with King David. Jesus is what the story of the, Israel, the people of Israel has been moving towards the entire time. And this also starts to hint at how Jesus came to fulfill a personal revelation because God is revealing himself to a people. He's coming in and living with them. He's making himself part of their lives. In Hebrews 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. Jesus came in to the general revelation to fulfill the special revelation in a personal revelation. See, Jesus is the embodiment of all truth in this way, and that can sound like a lofty statement, and we can kind of just gloss over, but don't miss it. Don't let it sneak by you. In our passage this morning, verses 16 and 17, it says, blessed are your ears, for they see, and your ears, for they, blessed are your eyes, for they see, (laughs) and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Peter says in his first letter, in chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, that even angels long to see what we've seen, what has been revealed to us through Jesus. We can even reword our main idea in this way. Jesus meets us where we are and shows us where we need to go. In Jesus, we can know truth more intimately and completely than we ever could. And we should enjoy, rejoice and engage with that gift. How do we do that? Well, I would say we should round out the ways which we experience truth, the ways which we experience Jesus. I think most of us are naturally drawn to maybe one or two expressions of this, these revelations of truth. But I don't think that's an ex- excuse to neglect the other revelations that God has given us. Myself, I find it a little bit easier to sit and engage and read Scripture, reading the Word of God. However, I find it much more difficult to sit, quiet my heart, and pray. Now, that means I need to work on my prayer life, but maybe some of you have a vibrant prayer life but can go a decent while without reading Scripture. Maybe some of us are easily drawn to private worship, but we falter when it comes to communal worship and the congregation as a church. Some of us may be eager to engage God in our minds, but we'll never engage him with our hearts. And some of us might be the opposite. Jesus has so much to give us and that we can't neglect any portion of it. 
Now, one way we can do this is leverage what you have with what you don't. Myself, because I do better reading scripture, I have been praying through the Psalms. So I start with what I can do and what, where I can enter in easily, and then I move up. So I'll pray through the Psalms, and that helps me engage more fully with God. And I don't know what this could, like, could look like for you, but pray about this week. Ask God, where am I maybe neglecting some of what you have to say to me because I want to experience you more fully. So truth is a person, and that person is Jesus. Having a grasp on that, we can return to the question that we asked earlier about the parables, mainly why does Jesus choose to teach and speak and reveal truth using parables? Well, the disciples asked the same question, but, and they did that in verse 10, which we will read in a moment, but Jesus' response characteristically wasn't as straightforward as maybe we would like it to be. So let's read that right now. It's verse 10 through 15. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak, in parables? speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this, heart's, for the, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So again, Jesus is quoting here. He's quoting from Isaiah 6. If we go and we read Isaiah 6 in context, this is a pretty dark passage. If you remember, God has just purified Isaiah. He's touched the coal onto his lips, and he's commissioned him to go and speak to the people of Israel. But he doesn't say what we maybe want him to say sometimes. He tells Isaiah basically proclaim judgment. The underlying assumption in his message is these people aren't going to listen to you. They aren't going to turn. They aren't going to repent. So you're here to judge them. And it says that only a small portion, a remnant, will survive this judgment. And from that remnant, a messianic figure will emerge. In our passage this morning, we have that messianic figure, Jesus, speaking and bringing this same passage forward to his hearers. So we need to ask, is Jesus' main point in parables, in using parables, to proclaim judgment? It's certainly part of it. To some, yes. I think that's abundantly clear as we read through Scripture, and we can't gloss over the fact that people will see and hear the truth and ultimately reject it. And for those people, hell awaits. But Jesus seems to introduce hope here that is previously absent in Isaiah's account. Something has changed. There's a more complete revelation of truth now than there used to be. 
people being confronted by the person of Jesus would either turn and be hardened or would be brought into adoption. Now, that in itself is a point that we could and will talk about for the rest of history. But for now, let's not harp on it. (laughs) But this duality does seem to emerge that there's those who reject Jesus and those who accept Jesus. But strangely, when Jesus comes in to explain this, he doesn't use just a duality. He expands it. He brings it into four conditions of heart. He does that in the parable of the four soils. So, in this way, this parable of the four soils is a parable about parables. When Mark recounts this same encounter of Jesus speaking to his disciples, he recalls Jesus saying, why do you not understand this parable? No, he said, not why. He said, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus is basically saying, the reason I speak in parables is because, well, no one's in the same place. I need to cover several audiences at once. So, let's go back into the text and read Jesus' own explanation of the four soils. This is verse 18 through 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that, has been, that which has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a, l- a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now there's a lot that we can talk about in this parable. And like I said, parables are meant to appeal to everyone where they are, so I encourage you, sit with this parable this week and read through it and see what's Jesus trying to say to me specifically through it. But this morning, I want to take a step back and look at, look at it a little bit further away. Instead of presenting us with two heart conditions, Jesus presents us with four. And I think this passage often gets interpreted by taking those four heart conditions and kind of jamming them into two categories. And uh, those two categories would be, you know, the Christians and the others, those who receive truth with joy and those who for some reason or another don't. And I kind of want to push back on that a little bit this morning. I think that reading the parable is dangerous, and this is why. It seems to assume that as we receive truth as Christians, it's easy sailing from there on out. And that's just not true. It seems to assume that when we receive truth from God, at that point, we do nothing but flourish. I don't think that's any of our experiences. I think it's a misunderstanding about true discipleship, what what the Christian life as a whole actually looks like. The Christian life isn't defined by a single moment of truth that's 
been sowed into your soul. It's a lifelong surrender, populated with failure on our part and steadfast love and faithfulness on God's part. It's a lifelong process. Imagine if a year ago when I stand here and married my wife, I said the words, I said the vow, I made the decision. I then walked off the stage and lived for the rest of my life like I had never made those vows before. Our commitment to Jesus needs to permeate everything in our lives and perpetuate to the end of our lives because all of us have thorns in our lives. All of us have some rocky soil in our soul. And we may accept one aspect of the truth and completely deny another. And that's something we can't keep on doing. We can either take all of Jesus or we can take none of him. And this can be overwhelming. And it is if we look at a lifelong journey of accepting Jesus as a barrier between us and God. Like when, if I don't know Jesus completely, then I don't really know him at all. But that's not really the paradigm we need to have. We have to look at the lifelong process of sanctification as a growing relationship with Jesus, just like you get to know anybody else. We continue to learn more and more about who he is, and that continues to change us to be more and more like him. If any of us have been in our nucleus class, um, which is basically our introduction class to who we are and what we believe here at Terra, we discuss the discipleship spiral in that class, which is how we at Terra understand the Christian life. And that spiral starts with a revelation of God to us, of himself. And then we take that revelation and we, res- we reflect on it. We respond to it internally. And when we respond to it internally, we then reflect it outwards in our emotions. But the spiral part is this, that it just keeps on happening. He reveals one bit to us, and then we deal with ourselves in, that, in respect to that. And then he reveals more and more, and we continue to grow and continue to grow. And I want to take just a moment to reflect on the immense grace that's inherent in that way, in, that, in the way that Jesus reveals himself to us and in a way reveals ourselves to us. Imagine if God revealed everything that was wrong with you completely. Every wrong desire, every twisted emotion, every mangled truth. A lifetime of self-realization in a moment. It would, it would crush you. In the beginning of chapter 6 in Isaiah, this happens to Isaiah. Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God, and he absolutely despairs. He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. He sees immediately his fallenness and his brokenness when confronted with the whole majesty and glory of God. But God knows he has to work with us slowly. And I think that's extremely gracious. God knows who you are. He sees everything that's wrong with you, yet he doesn't just force you to change automatically. He takes his time with you. He teaches you. He loves you. He's a patient father. 
So if you're overwhelmed by any kind of sin or failure in your life this morning, just know that you haven't surprised God. He's the one who's shown it to you, and he's going to work with you to fix it. And it will take the rest of your life, and that's okay. That's how it's supposed to be. (laughs) Rely on his steadfast love and his kindness. He knows what he's doing. Keep seeking his face. Now, recognizing this, knowing that there's a process in which we have been changed by God, that should change how we act. Specifically, it should change how we act in our relationships. If we know that we have thorns and stony soil and that God deals graciously with us, how much more should we deal graciously with the other people in our lives? We want people to know what we know and experience what we have experienced and to see what we have been shown. So what do we usually do? We just tell them. Tell them, hey, you're doing something wrong. We tell them the truth. Now, there is a place for that. Hear me, I'm not saying there's not. There is a place for speaking truth into people's lives. But it can't be all we do. Imagine if all that God ever did was convict you of sin. We need to live lives of grace and love so that when we do speak the truth, it just it doesn't fall flat. This is where I think Jesus' metaphor of the thorns and the rocky soil is really helpful. What farmer would see a patch of ground covered in thorns or a patch of soil that is just infested with rocks and see, he would see it and just kind of keep going seed on it year after year and do nothing to mend, to mend that soil, to make it profitable. If they mend and they take, the, they take the tremendous effort to pull those stones out of the rocks and to clear away those thorns and they sow next, that seed might actually have a chance of producing. If we are going to be sowers of the truth in people, in our lives, whether it's our spouse, our children, our family, or someone we're witnessing to, we first need to be gardeners of souls. Now, how we do that needs to be based on the person and the situation. Like I said, people's souls are complex and nuanced, and we should never make the mistake of thinking they're simple. Ultimately, we need to bring people face-to-face with the person of Jesus. Because when it comes down to it, we stand where we stand, and we know what we know, not chiefly because somebody told it to us, but because we came face-to-face with Jesus. We need to help people see Jesus. And the best way we can do that is by living a life that looks like Jesus's. Our words are important, but our words are only a subset of our actions. Having been made to look more like Jesus ourselves, we need to do everything that we can to bring people in in our lives into contact with him. As As we turn to celebrate communion... We remember the work that Christ did for us. While our souls were still rocky and overgrown, he came to earth and lived the life that we couldn't live as an example for us. Truth came down as a person, and then he died on the cross so that he could extend grace to us, grace that we didn't earn and grace that we are forever and eternally in need of. 
we're going to sing a song right now. And throughout that time, I ask that you just quiet your heart and ask God to show you where have you been ignoring his truth. Ask him to show you where you've been rejecting Jesus. Ask him to show you where you've been perhaps ungracious with people in your life. Repent, draw on his grace, and turn to worship. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, and Lord, you are welcome to celebrate communion with us. The communion packets are on the back if you didn't grab one on your way in. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. The fact that you are patient with us, that in our floundering and in our constant inability to do as you ask, that you don't grow upset, but because of what Jesus has done for us, you look on us with love and patience. Lord, I pray that we would be changed by what we hear this morning and that we would extend grace because we have received grace. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.